So today's seminar is by the Saab, uh, who's uh, recently joined postdoc here. He's been here since June. Uh, Saab's come from Texas A&M via Canada to here. And he's working with me and some guys at the IBM Exascale group on uh, problems of moving data around inside Exascale computers. And so today, uh, Saab's talking about network code. So I'll be talking about in search of optimality, network coding for wireless networks. Hopefully it doesn't work, that's good. So this is a joint work with my wife, who is at University of Toronto, Alex and Michael from Israel. And special thanks to Claudio, because my laptop was not working and he lended me his laptop, so special thanks. <laughs> and before I proceed further, I know it's 2 p.m. and everybody might want to go for a nap, so I'll not so I'll try to make the things easier, and I'll keep you awake by asking tough questions. And we might have a quiz at the end. <coughs> so, so I'll be talking, so as you see, I'm focusing on the optimality in wireless networks. So what is optimality? Everybody has its own view of optimality by the area he works or by the application he's working on. For some people, optimality might be increasing the throughput. For other people, it might be reducing the power consumption. For some people, optimality might be reducing the congestion and whatever you like. And for theoretical people, it might have some other meaning. So, so what my focus is that, can we somehow come up with some definition of optimality that makes some sense? And if we have some definition of optimality in some sense, can we achieve that theoretically? Or suppose if we, can, if we cannot, how close we can go to that? And then another thing is that, suppose we have some theoretical results, can we do something practical about that thing? So, so let me thank my sponsors. So this work was sponsored by, part of these works were sponsored by DARPA, National Science Foundation, Fulbright Fellowship, United States Department of State, and Texas A&M University. So, these, so thanks to my sponsors. So basically in the talk, I'll be focusing on index coding, and briefly, I'll be talking about the approximation algorithms for the complement index coding problem and providing you with some hardness results. Very, very briefly, what's index network coding and how it's different from the standard routing approach. A network on your left, a part of network on your right. So what is the concept in traditional routing? A node, it can be a router, base station, relay, server, whatever you like, can either forward the packets by forwarding, I mean like encode and forward, decode and forward, and all those things. Or it can route the packets. So what's the difference in network coding? In network coding, you say, OK, in addition to forwarding and routing the packets, you can perform some operations on the packets that a relay or a base station receives. And this approach has shown to provide a lot of benefits in different areas. For example, in, it, it has improved the network coding achieved multicast capacity in a network. And then there are a bunch of other things, like it has shown to improve network resilience, reliability, and all those things. So if you just Google the network coding, you might find like a couple of hundred thousand papers or something like this. So I'll not go into detail of the application of network coding. My focus will be on index coding. It's not working. So index coding is basically, it can be thought of network coding over the single hop wireless networks, briefly. And 
how can I precisely categorize index coding and network coding? It has been proven that for each instance of network coding problem, there is a corresponding instance of index coding problem. And similarly, for each index in instance of index coding problem, there is a corresponding instance of the network coding problem. So what I mean is that there is one-to-one -one mapping between index coding and network coding problem. So, so, what are the, so the first thing is that, why do we need to study index coding problem or even the network coding problem? So your answer can have two aspects. One is like, does it have some theoretical importance? And the second might be, does it have some practical importance? Theoretically, very, very open question in the information theory, one of the very fundamental questions. What is the capacity of a general network with a bunch of delays? Unknown question. So if you know the network coding capacity, it's, it will give you, as I mentioned, so network coding is the most general coding you can do on any network. So knowing the network coding capacity of the network, it will answer those fundamental questions in information theory. This is one thing. Another question is, theoretically, what is the maximum rate that, you, that two nodes or a bunch of nodes can communicate in any network, and what is the optimal way? So what I mean by the any nodes and any network, I'm restricting to any type of traffic. It can be multicast, unicast, and all those things. The only results we have till now are for the multicast, but there are many things unknown for the unicast case. What happens if your codes are non-linear, because now most of the channel codes we talk about are linear. What happens if your codes are non-linear? So all these are open questions and fundamental questions in information theory. If you can answer these problems, you can move very, very far into answering those questions. So this is one thing. Okay, one more thing. Please feel free to interrupt me whenever you like, if I'm going too fast or my things don't make sense. So this is a theoretical importance. And what are the things practically it has been shown to improve throughput reliability of wireless networks and all those things. So last night I was just Googling one of my papers that came in, I think, 2008, just to see like, how the people are using this thing. And some of the people I have seen like, who used my algorithm for like, in vehicular networks and cellular networks and all those things. So people are still using those things in practical applications. OK, so what is the key idea? I'll be focusing on wireless scenarios in this talk mostly. So one of the things in wireless is its broadcast nature. If I am a base station and I am sending something to David, all the people in the range will be able to overhear that thing. Some people think it's bad because it's going to cause interference, and David might be getting whatever he does not want. But if you look from the other perspective, David is getting some information through this listening. The idea is, can we make use of this opportunistic listening to maximize the rate of information exchange. Example, a toy example, a base station, relay, server, depending on from the field you belong to. And then three clients. Assume each client wants some packet or demands some packet. The client one in red wants packet one client in purple wants packet 2, and client in yellow wants packet P3. And assume from some previous transmissions, for example, as I mentioned, like it can be due to opportunistic listening or from the broadcast nature of wireless medium, or this can be some cache as you have in your Internet Explorer or things like that. Each client has saved some packets. So 
This guy has saved our cached packets P2 and P3. That guy has saved packet P1 and P3. And this guy has cached packet P1 and P2. So now the idea is, can we make adva take advantage of this hash set to maximize the rate of information exchange while still optimizing the network? So what I mean, let's talk about the traditional approach. What the relay know or the server needs to do to satisfy client one, it has to send packet P1, one transmission. Satisfy client P2, satisfy client two, it has to transmit packet two, packet P2. Satisfy client three, it has to transmit packet P3. So total number of transmissions, three transmissions, traditional approach. You have three clients, each wanting different packets. You need to send three packets, so that's good, no confusion. But can you take advantage of the side information? The idea is yes. So what the server needs to send, if it just adds all the demands of all the three clients and send just one packet. So for example, if each packet is of one byte, this P1 plus P2 plus P3, it will be, another, it will be just the addition of these three packets, again be of one byte. And if it sends that packet, what's happen? what happens? So what will happen is that if you see, Client 1, after getting this packet P1 plus P2 plus P3, it can subtract the packets it has already cached to get its demand that's packet P1. The client P2, after getting packet P1 plus P2 and plus P3, can subtract its cache information that's packet P1 and P3 from the packet it has received to get back the packet P2. And similarly, client P3 or client three, after getting single packet P1 plus P2 plus P3, it can subtract packet P1 and packet P2 from this packet to get back the, it's, to get back its demands, that's packet P3. So now how many transmissions we need to satisfy all these clients? Only one transmission. So basically, we have reduced the number of transmissions from three to one. So another point to note is that we still have the same rate of information exchange. So what I'm pointing out is that rate of information exchange and number of packets that we send might not have the one-to-one -one correspondence. So it is, what I mean is that there might be two schemes. One scheme sending more packets but has lesser rate of information exchange. And another scheme that is sending less packets but has a higher rate of information exchange. For example, in this thing, you can see that in a traditional scenario, you have to send three packets. In this scenario, you have to send just one packet, but the rate of information exchange is exactly the same. So how do we achieve optimality in this case? Less transmissions, you have reduced the number, so what I'm saying, so you have reduced the bandwidth consumption by a factor of two-thirds. You have reduced the battery consumption by a factor of two-thirds. You have reduced the congestion by a factor of two-thirds. So, and then, so you are basically achieving so many things in terms of optimality. Another toy example, let's consider a content distribution network. It can be a Netflix server and this can be three clients. They want to watch movie, this guy wants to watch movie A, this guy wants to watch movie B, this guy wants to watch movie B. And each guy has watched some movie previously and stored the contents of that movie in its cache. So this guy has stored movie B and C 
this guy has stored movie A and C, and this guy has stored movie A and B. So how the traditional Netflix server will work? Server will send one movie to this guy, movie A. It will send movie B to this guy. It will send movie C to this guy. How many transmissions? Three, traditional approach. But if you do index coding, how many transmissions you require? Server just needs to send one packet, A plus B plus C. And then all these three clients can decode whatever they want. So again, optimality in terms of load balancing. Because you have reduced the utilization of this bottleneck link. Previously, you were using it thrice. Now you have reduced its consumption by a factor of two-thirds. So obviously, you are doing it better in terms of load balancing. So you are utilizing your resources efficiently. Because now you are using this, like the router, it might be the core router. You are utilizing it two-thirds of the time. And so it means you are, you are using two-thirds of the less energy. And some of you might know that energy consumption is one of the biggest challenges in data centers. And I was reading somewhere that about 2% of the US total energy consumption is used for the data center energy. So reducing this energy by two-thirds, it's something big. OK, another example. A network with five clients, one, two, three, four, five. Each client wants something. Client one wants packet one, client two wants packet two, three wants packet three, four wants packet four, five wants packet five, P5, sorry. And then each has some access to some side information. So now my question is that, what should the server transmit? In the previous slides, like the two Troy examples, what we saw was server needed to transmit the server needed to take the demands of all the clients, add them up, and just send them. So based on that traditional approach, why, doesn't, why don't the server send P1 plus P2 plus P3 plus P4 plus P5? Just add the demands of all the clients in one single packet and send it. Is it good or bad? Is it, will it work or not? The idea is it's not going to work. If you can see, if you send P1 plus P2 plus P3 plus P4 plus P5, one packet, you can see the client one. There is no way that it can decode packet P2 and P5. This comes from high school linear algebra, that your number of unknowns are more than the number of your the linear equations you have. So, so there is no way you can decode the, you can decode all the variables. So now the question is that, what should the server transmit? In this case, believe me, the optimal solution is that server needs to transmit these three packets. One packet P1 plus P2, another packet P2 plus P3, and the third packet P5. And then you can prove that this is the least that any scheme information theoretically has to transmit. Now you might have some idea that how the combinatorics are involved. So the first thing a server needs to calculate is what is the least number of transmissions it has to send? And secondly, if it knows the least number of transmissions, what are those transmissions? So are they P1 plus P2? Or they might be like P1 plus 7, P2 plus 10, P3. So what is going to be the field size? In this case, like I'm working on Galois field of size 2. But as you know, to have sometimes you need to work on the higher field just to have the number of linear equations equal to the number of unknowns. Again, from high school linear algebra. So you might be getting some idea that how the combinatorics are involved in this problem. 
Okay, let me formally, de formally define the index coding problem. An instance of index coding problem is defined by a server, source, relay, or base station, whatever you call. A set of clients, in this case you have five clients, client one, client two, client three, client four, client five. And then you have a set of packets. In this case you have five packets at the server, P1 through P5. And then obviously these packets are needed to be transmitted to the clients. And then each client, you can you define with two things. One with its demand, and the other one with its asset or the side information or the information it has cached. So this side information can be empty as well, because it might happen that some client does not have any side information of anything in the network. And then what the server can do, server can transmit the packets it has, or it can encode them. As I mentioned previously, Here's the difference between the traditional approach and network coding or index coding, that now you can encode the packets. And as you can see, it makes huge difference. And what is the problem formally? You have to find a scheme that allows each client to decode the packets it requires while minimizing the total number of transmissions from the server. And as I mentioned, it can help you achieve optimality in many terms. For example, I mentioned like, less utilization of bandwidth, less congestion control, and all those things. So again, the Troy example, if you can see, without index coding, traditional approach, you had to send five transmissions. With index coding, you have to send only three transmissions. So, so you have reduced the number of transmissions. But a very, very bad news. In 2007, I proved that index coding problem is NP-hard. In 2011, these guys proved that this is not only NP-hard but NP-hard to approximate. So a problem that's not only NP-hard, but NP-hard to approximate. It means you don't have anything to do about that problem. It's like, you can say it's like computationally intractable in all the dimensions you talk about. So we are stuck somehow. A very important problem, you cannot even approximate. Like What I mean is that you cannot say, okay, this is how far I can go from optimal. But there is no way. So this is one of the toughest problems you can have ever. So, so what should we do? Should we lose track or should we, can we do something better? So the idea was, this problem is important. Let's consider this problem from a slightly different perspective. Index coding problem, your objective is to minimize the number of transmissions from the server. So I define this complementary problem. So what is a complementary problem? Maximize the number of saved transmissions. So this is somehow like related. The, the lesser number of transmissions from the server, the more the number of transmissions you save. For example, in this example, the optimally the index coding solution has to send at least three transmissions. And without index coding, you have to send five transmissions. So, the, so you save two transmissions. So, so if you minimize this, you maximize this. So, very, very related problems. But a bad consequence of this thing. So based on this simple thing, you can say that the optimal of complement index coding problem is total number of packets minus the optimal of index coding problem. And very, very simple consequence, complement index coding problem is again NP-hard. So you started with NP-hard problem. You ended up with another NP-hard problem. So what are you do? So what will you do? 
Okay, so just to like, some of you might not be familiar with NPR problems. So these are like the toughest problems in computation. So in a very, very layman words, you can say it's like similar to counting the number of stars on the universe, in the universe, or counting the number of sand particles in the world. So this is how the computation complexity it involves. <coughs> so these are like, so, so when you say like a problem with NP-hard, to solve an NP-hard to approximate, it means like even for like reasonable number of clients, you might take like a couple of hundred years to solve that thing. So, so practically you cannot use this thing. <coughs> so, I, so again the toy example, optimal solution requires three transmissions, index coding requires three, and the optimal of complement is total number of packets minus the packets you require in the coding problem. This is the packets you save. This is the opt of complement index coding problem. Okay, let me describe one thing. So, I, so this is the complementary problem of index coding problem. It is not the dual problem. So it is very, very different from the dual problem. Like I'm talking in reference to like the primal dual problems you talk in optimization. This is a complementary problem, not the dual problem. Okay, is there some concept of complementary problems in the optimization community? Yes. It has been shown that complement, complementary problems has significantly different behaviors in terms of optimization approximation. Two very, very well-known complementary problems are graph coloring and color saving. Graph, graph coloring is one of the toughest problems in the world. It has proven to be NP-hard and NP-hard to approximate. But it's complementary problem that's called color saving problem has very good approximation ratio. So even the one of the algorithms you say it's like two-thirds, and the other one is the more better one is five-six approximation. So it's a good problem. And then another thing is that why do we need complementary problems? Because as I mentioned, the problem is very, very important in terms of theory and practice. But if you cannot approximate a problem, you cannot find the optimal solution, then you are somehow lost in the space. You don't have any reference. I give you a solution and David gives you a solution. How will you say which solution is better? You don't have any fair comparison ground because you don't have any way to measure. So by defining the complementary problem and, com and coming up with some approximation algorithms, I will provide you with some fair comparison grounds where you can measure two solutions or where you can relate, okay, so this is a complete index coding problem or this is this problem information theory. How I can relate these two problems because now I have the benchmarks. So this is another thing. A practical question might be, you have a server and then you have a bunch of clients. Let's talk about routers. In routers, you can do two things. One is like a router can fragment the packets or it cannot fragment the packets. A fundamental question is that if a router is allowed to fragment the packets versus a pack router is not allowed to fragment the packets, how it is going to affect the rate of information exchange? So for that, we define two things, the scalar index coding problem and the vector index coding problem. In scalar problem, the router or server cannot subdivide a packet into smaller packets. For example, if each packet is of 40 bytes, it, it is restricted by transmitting the 40 bytes. In the vector case, it can fragment a packet into smaller packets. And the question is that, does it affect the rate of information exchange? The answer is yes. Again, the same to example, in the first case, like the scalar case, 
I do not allow the router to subdivide a packet into smaller packets. So as I shown, as I mentioned, server needs to send at least three transmissions. But once I allow the server to subdivide a packet into smaller packets, I can satisfy the clients in 2.5 transmissions. So what do I mean by 2.5 transmissions? So assume each packet is of 100 bytes. By three transmissions, I mean you have to send at like without index coding, server has to send five packets. So it has to send 500 bytes. With scalar index coding, it has to send three packets. So it has to send 300 bytes. With vector index coding, it has to send 2.5 packets. Basically, it has to send 250 bytes. So basically, it has reduced the number of packets from like number of bytes from 500 to 250 by using this thing. And what are the things that it has to transmit? Basically, in this scenario, it has to subdivide a package into two smaller packets. And it basically, the transmissions they have to send is first half of packet one added to the first half of packet two. This is the first half transmission. And the second half transmission is that second half of second packet added to the first half of the third packet. This is going to be your second half transmission. Your third half transmission is second half of the third packet and first half of the fourth packet added. And then these are like your five half transmissions. So it means like 2.5 full transmissions. <coughs> so another thing, very, very important thing. Actually, people have asked me this thing many times. Whenever I talk to people about this implementing index coding problem, one of the very, very basic questions is that, OK, you can prove this is good, but we have to pay in terms of overhead. Because if you're implementing it on routers, you have to have an extra layer of software. You have to perform some coding operations, which many routers cannot do. For example, we are looking these days. I'm looking at with David. Many routers, like you can, like the things, like for example, you cannot even think of many routers doing network coding, because if you do this, if you perform this coding operation on routers, it will degrade the performance of a router very, very badly. So now the question is there: Can you come up with something that's again better? But that's not computationally intensive. For that, I came up with the idea of this sparse index coding problem. So basically, it's sparse in terms of the computational needs from a router. So idea is basically that you restrict each router to encode or each server to encode at most two packets at a time. So traditional index coding, where you don't have any restriction of the server for, for its computational power, you can satisfy all these three clients with one transmission. But now, when you restrict the computational power of the server, you, can satisfy, you have to send at least two transmissions to satisfy all the clients. So it's worse compared to this, but it's still better compared to the non-index coding where you have to send three transmissions. So as I mentioned, the motivation was, obviously, in sparse where you don't have to encode a lot of packets, in this case, you have efficient implementations of encoders and decoders on the traditional routers. And the field size is very small. This is basically I'm working on GF2. So what a GF2 is means you just need a simple XOR gate, which you can easily implement in hardware. You don't have to perform any tough mathematical operations. Just use a simple XOR gate, and you will be happy. And at the decoder, use the reverse of that XOR gate. And then as I'm working on Galois field of size 2, Obviously, the packet overhead and the lesser is very, very and the overhead 
and the additional information in the packet is very, very small compared to working on a higher field. Another question you might ask, what happens when the demands of the clients overlap versus the case when the demands of, when, what happens when each client requires the unique packet versus the case versus when two clients might require the same packet? In this case, you see each client requires a unique packet in this multiple unicast case. In multiple multicast case, you see some clients might require the same package. Like, for example, client one and client three both want packet P1. So the demands of the clients overlap. How does this scenario affect the information exchange and all those things? So given this problem of information exchange, as I mentioned, the taxonomy can be, you can come up with two solutions. Vector, where, where based on fragmentation, where you allow a server to fragment a packet, scalar where you cannot allow a server to fragment, <coughs> and then multiple unicast and multiple multicast. Multiple unicast where the demands are unique, multiple multicast where demands might overlap with each other. So what, is my, what are my contributions? So firstly, like these are the approximation ratios of my algorithms. So for the general case, the approximation algorithm is at least and under root log and log log and, and for the vector it's even better. And for the sparse scalar case, this is the approximation algorithm. And for the vector scalar, vector sparse case, I give you the optimal solution. And for the multiple multicast case, I present to show that again this problem is not only NP-hard, but it's NP-hard to approximate within any factor n minus epsilon. And it's about one minus epsilon. So these are my results. So let's start with the multiple unicast case. So the case where demands of the clients are unique. So no two clients require the same packet. The first question is that, how are we going to capture this information relationship between the different clients? For that, I use the idea of what is, for what is called dependency graph. What is the graph? For each client, you have a vertex. So for client one, you have this vertex one. Client two, you have this vertex two. And then client three, vertex three. Client four, vertex four. And client five, the vertex five. And then the edges in this graph capture the information relationship between the clients. If you see, what it says is that if client one parents packet one and client five has packet one, this one's packet one, and this has packet one. So I'll be having an arc from one to five. Similarly, this client three has packet one, and again, this guy wants packet one. So there will be an arc from this to this. So basically, this is how I capture the information relationship in this graph. Okay. Few notations. So again, the intuition. So let like opt of CIC denote the optimal solution to the complement discoding problem. And let maze denote the acyclic induced subgraph of a graph. So what is the induced acyclic subgraph? Given a graph, you have to find its subgraph of maximum cardinality that does not have any cycles. So given this graph, its subgraph, vertex induced subgraph that does not have any cycles is, is maximum of size two. You cannot have a bigger graph, a bigger subgraph of this graph without that's acyclic. 
So, so what I claim is that you can save at most n minus maze transmissions. Why? What I'm saying is that essentially that any solution, any solution in the world has to transmit at least two packets in this scenario. Why? Intuition is very simple. You see, these two clients do not have any closed cycle of information. So if they do not have any closed cycle of information, you cannot have any shared information and then you cannot combine them. So you have to set, so they are basically, your demands are like theoretically independent of each other. So you have to send at least two packets certify these. So out of five, you have to send two to serve these. So the less is basically, you can save at most three in this instance. In general, you can save at most n minus maximum cyclic subgraph of the dependency graph. And then another interesting result from the graph theory. Maximum acyclic induced subgraph is equal to total number of vertices from, of a graph minus the feedback vertex set of the graph. So what is the feedback vertex set of the graph? Given a graph, you have to take out the least number of vertices from the graph that makes the graph acyclic. So this is the graph. You take out the feedback vertex set you are left with maximum acyclic induced subgraph. So just use that identity. And what I can say is that optimal solution can save at most feedback vertex set transmissions in any graph, in any instance. So good. Another thing, interesting thing. Feedback vertex set problem and vertex design cycle projecting problem are dual of each other. So let me explain. So, so just to give you a track so that you might not lose the track. I started with complementary indexing problem. I moved from there to the dependency graph. I moved dependency graph to the maximum acyclic subgraph, maximum acyclic subgraph to the feedback vertex set, and then feedback vertex set to the cycle packing. So basically, I'm moving indexing problem to the cycle packing problem. So feedback vertex set problem and the cycle packing problem are dual of each other. So they bound somehow. So now you might have some idea that if these two problems bound some each other, then I might be able to come up with some approximation. What is the vertex you shine cycle packing? Given a graph, you have to find the maximum number of cycles in the graph, such that vertices in those cycles do not share each other. In this graph, if you see, if you, fact, if you try to find any other cycle, the vertices will share. For example, if you'd like see, if you add this one five, this cycle is going to share these two vertices and any other cycle. So, any, so the maximum number of cycles in this graph that do not share a vertex are two. So now I have related index sorting problem or the complementary sorting problem to the cycle packing problem. Good. So what, what is the advantage of this thing? Advantage is clear from this figure. What I claim is that all the clients that are connected by a cycle in the dependency graph, for example, if you have L, you can serve them by L minus one transmissions. So it means for each cycle, I am saying saving one transmission. You see, in this cycle, you have five clients, P1, P2, P3, P4, and P5. And you can serve the demands of all these five clients by just four transmissions. And then these are the four transmissions. So this guy can be like P2, like client 2 can easily get packet P2 from P1 plus P2. 
The only tough thing that has to be done is by the packet one because it has to add all these four equations. And if you can see if it is like adding them on GF2, these two will cancel out, these two will cancel out, these two will cancel out. So you will be eventually left with P1 plus P5. And it already has P5. So subtracting P5 from P1 plus P5, it will be able to get packet P1. So the crux is that given an instance of index sorting problem, pack can find a dependency graph and pack as many vertex design cycles as possible. Solution seems to be very simple. So flow, I give you an instance of index sorting problem, construct dependency graph, and then look at the capability of your router. If it can fragment the packet, good. Find the fractional cycles. I'll explain what are the fractional cycles. But, and if it cannot fragment the packets, find the integer cycles, maximum integer cycles in the dependency graph. And now you're happy. And the algorithm is really very simple. What is the algorithm? A very, very simple greedy algorithm. What it says is that, given an instance, construct the dependency graph, and then find the cycles greedily. Start with the cycle like of size two, then cycle three, size three, four, five. Do everything very, very greedily. And then for the vertices that you cannot cover with any cycle, just transmit their packet independently. For example, in this case, take this graph, you can find that most two cycles, for each cycle, for example, for cycle on top, send one packet P2, P3, and cycle on bottom, send another packet P4, P5, and then for the vertices that are not covered by a cycle, for example, this P1, just send the packet P1 independently. <coughs> okay. And then what you can prove is that easily, if you can save, like if you can pack alpha number of cycles in the dependency graph, you can save alpha transmissions. Very simple. <coughs> and then instead of going into the proof details, this is how the proof idea works. Basically, you have this complementary problem, underscoring problem. Basically, you, what you do is that you somehow relate the actual problem to the complementary problem, and then the complementary problem to its dual problem, and dual problem because through in fraction, integer to the fractionals, and then you have all those integrality gaps. And then you lose because of your approximation like this n under root thing. And then when you com combine them in the sequence, you end up getting this thing. So end up getting this thing that the approximation ratio of the proposed algorithm is n under root log n log log n. And then by using the ideas from Rabunajan graphs, those are like, like for example, you have to realize somehow in the four dimension, which is almost impossible to do, but like, I don't know how it, like the Ramunajan did, but he was imagining in four dimensions. So then you can show, show this is the best you can do. <clears throat> okay, now let's talk about the fractional case, like where a router can fragment the packets. What you do is that, you basically, instead of like having this simple dependency graph, you have some sort of like layered dependency graph where each fractional cycle is, is, is represented by a say, layer. So let me explain what is a fractional cycle. Normally you say, okay, I connect these two vertices by a cycle. So it means like you are using whole of the edge. But if I say I use, I'm using a fractional cycle, it means you might be using a part of the edge. For example, if you're using 50% of the edge, you say, okay, the, this cycle is 0.5 fractional cycle or something like this. 
similar to the idea of this like relaxation in LP or anything like this. So what you can prove is that the, our proposed algorithm has even better approximation ratio for the factor case which is log n, log, log n, and this is something good. And then as I mentioned the sparse case, where the server is not computationally very, very intensive and you want to, you don't want to overburden it and you restrict that at most it can encode two transmissions at what time. So what I claim is that in this case the complement indexing problem and the cycle packing problem are exactly the same. The first dimension, like, so what I need to show is that basically very, very simple thing have to show <coughs> inequalities in both the directions. So for example, showing this thing is by simple because as I see that each cycle you are saving one transmission. So you might be able to save more transmissions. So that's why you can save at least as many cycles as the optimal solution to the cycle packing. And the other direction is a little bit trickier, but the idea to show the other direction is a little bit trickier where you show that basically you cannot save more transmissions than the total number of cycles in the dependency graph. So how you show that basically, you assume that some genie gives you the optimal combination. And then taking that optimal combination, you construct something that we call transmission graph. So basically what it says is assume that genie tells you that to satisfy this instance, you have to send these two packets. So for each packet, you just send, have two vertices. And then if you send P1 plus P2, you have this edge. And if you send P3 plus P4, you have this edge. And then basically what you show is that in this transmission graph, you can find a bunch of walks. And each walk eventually loops around. So basically each walk gives you a cycle. Each walk gives you a cycle. So in other words, you cannot save more than the number of cycles in the dependency graph. So, so combining these two things, you can say that, so you basically combine these two things, you can prove that our algorithm in the sparse index coding problem has an approximation ratio of two minus one over n. So it is good, because you see, if n is larger, we are having somehow the constant factor approximation. And this is some of, some of the best things you can do with these problems. And then what I'm saying is that we save at least one over n under root transmissions. Okay. So what's crooks summarizing all these things? You can say sparse problems are NP hard. It's not only NP hard, but it's quasi NP hard to approximate the number of transmissions by this much factor. And then, okay, for the vector case, as I mentioned, you can show that we provide the optimal solution that's polynom polynomial time as well. And then multiple multicast case, the case if you remember I mentioned was the demands of the clients can overlap. For example, in this case, client P1 and client, these two clients are overlapping. And this can thought of the most general case for any network, like this can be like the most general information theoretic problem for this case. So, so, if you can solve this thing, I think you can maybe get the Turing prize, something like this, to Turing one, but results are negative. <laughs> what I ended up showing is that this problem is again NP hard, and NP hard to approximate 
within any reasonable factor. So might not have any good hopes. So what I did was basically I showed that this multiple multicast case is same as the independent set problem. So might be aware of independent set problem. It's like very common in like scheduling and all those things, but in many ways. So basically, and it has been proven that independent set problem is NPR and NPR to approximate. So what I show is that if you can solve this complementary index scoring problem for multiple multicast case, you can basically solve <coughs> the independent set problem. The idea of proof is some to give you. What to do is that basically for an instance of the independent set problem, you construct an instance of the complement index problem by having that for each edge in the independent set, you have a packet. And for each vertex in the independent set, you have another packet. And then you try to find the optimal solution versus complement index coding problem. And then you can say if you can find the optimal solution with the complement index coding problem, you can give the optimal solution to the independent set problem, which is NP-hard. So and NPR to approximate then good. So this was like most of the theoretical things. So some of you might be are working on like something practical. And the question might be, these results are good theoretically. But are they really good practically? What is the practical significance? You might be saying, because some people might say, okay, theoretically they are good, but like this might work well when n is n tends to infinity or all those things. But what happened like in the real practical cases when you don't have like big instances? Like your reasonable instances, are they good, are they bad? And what is your experimental setup? Is it good or it is like just fake to, like, to, to boost your results, something like this? So experimental setup. So what I did was, I think this is the worst you can do in terms of reducing the performance. So, 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 it, so, it is, so in terms of like the fair, so this is the fairest comparison you can make because I'm performing the experiments in the worst possible scenario in terms of advantage. So what I do is that I choose a number of clients and I randomly choose the cardinality of the side information for each client. And then again, randomly, I choose the packets for the, in that hash set. And the, for all this, I use this like uniform random because, the, because what I have shown is that if you don't have this uniform randomness, you do it like, for example, the Gaussian, where the somehow the hazards are somehow correlated, then your advantage is much higher with index coding as compared to this case. So that's why I did not choose that. I choose the one that's giving me the least advantage to be on like, very, very fair grounds. And then what I do is that I create the dependency graph, and then I apply the proposed algorithm. And then I do a, another thing. Simple. This is the toy example we have been discussing. This is the dependency graph. And I did one thing like, whenever I have a bidirectional edge, this and this, I replace with the undirected edge. And you see, this is something very common in graph theory. This is a clique. And then what you can say is that all the clients connected by a clique can be served in one transmission. So basically, you need with cycle packing, you have to send two. But with this clique, you have to send just one transmission. So, so you can improve the algorithm a little bit. So what you do is that, firstly, you find all the three cliques in the dependency graph. And then in the remaining graph, you do the two cliques. In the leftovers, you do the cycle packing. 
and the results. These are the results. So these are the number of clients. So you have 10, 20, 30, 40, up to 100. And then this is the average. I think it is a, I cannot see. Okay, basically it is the average number of transmissions saved. So for example, and these like this average was taken, I think, for each, I think each was, I think I had for at least a couple of thousand experiments for each point. So as you see, the average, like for example, the average presentation, average saving can go up to like around 48%. And this is something good. So what I'm saying is that instead of like sending 100 transmissions in traditional way, you are sending like around 45 transmissions or like not 45, like 52 transmissions. So this is good. So basically you are reducing your resource utilization by a factor of like 30 to 40%. And then even for the 10, like for example, you see, in this case, even it's like you're saving at least 20%. This is something good. And then you might say, what happens if you restrict the amount of side information instead of having choosing it like randomly? Let's choose it like reduce the amount of side information somehow. In this case, in the new one, the maximum side information each client can have is five packets. And the red it can have it's at most, I think it's 10 or 15. It's 15. I think it's, 15. it's 10 or 15. I don't. I cannot even see it. But I think in this case it's five, and assume that on the upper case it's 15. So you see, in your system you want 100 packets, but each client is not storing more than five packets. So it's not much of overhead in terms of cash. But even in that case, your saving is around 30 percent. So that is good. Just by saving one, like one, like it's like just by saving five packets, you are saving almost 30% for 100 clients. And if you have like smaller number of clients, for example, this case you are saving are even higher. Another thing like people might be interested is like what is the running time? This is the, for the optimal solution and this is for the proposed solution. So how I implemented the optimal solution so the, you might say like for the optimal solution, I have to go through like choose, try all possible combinations and everything. I did not do that. I implemented it in a very, very efficient way. There are something called SAT solvers. Those are like hugely used in VLSA community. Those are basically sort of like extremely fast optimization tools try to solve the Boolean satisfiability problem. And each year they have like the contest which SAT solver is the best. And basically people like, like do their PhDs on writing these like efficient SAT solvers, they use techniques from artificial intelligence, all those things. So, so, give the, so to, to, again, to give the fair advantage, I implemented this thing using the efficient, the, I, I used the, I think I, I used the SAT solver that won the first place prize in terms of its efficiency for implementing this thing. And for this thing, I used simple MATLAB on my old laptop. So nothing fancy. This ran, I ran this thing on the supercomputer at Texas A&M on my home old laptop. So the fastest possible SAT solver, supercomputer, my old home laptop, and then MATLAB. You can see the comparison. Even it is taking 82 seconds with all those like best things. It is taking how much? 0 0.0078 seconds with the dumbest machines. So crooks is you can do it practically as well. So conclusion.
these are the approximation ratios of five algorithms, and then I did like so. I can I did I analyzed the problem and gave you the, some good algorithms that you can use in many scenarios. And thanks. If you have any questions, I'll be happy to answer. design basically all his encoding to do it optimally, right? But for this he has to know who knows what. Oh, you're perfectly right. And, and in, in your practical application, I mean, how would that happen? That somebody knows what all these, okay. all these satellites yeah, sure, sure, sure. know? So I cannot tell you exactly because of some restriction how it's developed in DARPA. Okay. But no, no, but I know how, but I can tell you how it's done in many other networks. Okay. So in many other networks, for example, let's talk about this 82.11. So what you do is that in 82.11, you have something called ACK. I send you a packet, you send me an ACK. So you just need to add one bit in that ACK. In that ACK, whenever you send me ACK, you send me, okay, I am having these five packets. And then when I receive that ACK, I'll store that ACK at the server in my cache. And then you can, that's why I'm saying, when you're working on GF2, just one bit. Assume you have the, your packet size assume like 500 bytes, and you are sending like one bit. So it's not going to make much of a difference. And like I think some people, I think they implemented it practically. I don't remember, but I think they showed was the overhead was not more than like two to three percent in terms of bytes. So this is any questions? Just two if you don't mind. Uh, so one question was, I guess all the results about it being NP heard depend on you having to consider every possible transmission network and set of previous knowledge and so on. Are there any good results for getting optimal things, sort of in specific cases or for families? Of okay, so you're saying, okay, so in which cases you can do the optimal? Yeah. So as I mentioned in the sparse case, we are and sparse vector case, we have provided the optimal solution. So this is the one case you can do. And in general, if you like restrict, if you talk about like general case, so for example, in general it's NPR, but for the sparse, as I mentioned, we have shown that it's, you can come up with the optimal solution. And then other than that, I'm not aware of any other result that everyone looked into this problem. Some people have, as I mentioned, like just, I was thinking like somebody will be asking me this question. So what I did was last night, I Googled my papers and Googled index coding. So most of the things I found like people were using, like they were using some of the algorithms to, as I show like in this, like they were saying, okay, we use this algorithm from this paper and implemented this thing on this vehicular network. And then we say, okay, so they have this algorithm and then we can use this algorithm to prove this thing on the network coding. And the other question was that you have the results for the difference between the optimal code, or finding the optimal code with these SAT solvers and finding them an approximation. Exactly. How big was the difference in the performance of the solution for those? Okay, so in a practical? Yeah, just for sort of the, the graphs that you tested. Okay, so I tested the graphs. Actually, I have those graphs. I actually, those are in my paper, like in 2008 paper. I did not put them. Okay, so what in those graphs, what I showed was, let me remember. So basically, if you're, the bad thing is that about the optimal solution, when you have 100 clients, 
and you run it like you cannot go like more than 200 clients because we were running it like for 200 clients and I, I think we spent like more than two months like just like algorithm was running for two months mm -hmm. and it was still running so so for so beyond 200 I was unable to do anything but like if you talk about less than 200 so those gaps were not far yeah. for example I think the worst the gap was around 50 percent so it's for example, I can say like if the I, like the optimal was saving like ten transmissions, ours was saving at least five transmissions. That was the worst case. So this is uh, practically. Any other questions? Okay, so I saw everybody just across there. I should see all the future. So if you have any questions, please, please tell us. Thank you again.